One of the uh, keynote speakers is Yorm Edinger. I've had Yorm here on a couple of occasions, and I've gotten to know him over the last four or five years. I first met him out of First Baptist Katy a few years ago, and whenever I'm in Israel, we always get together for breakfast. And uh, he is one of the most uh, articulate, knowledgeable people I know about, just a whole host of things related to Israel. He just has a prodigious memory. And his topic is going to be on how the U.S. presidential elections might impact the relations between Israel and the U.S. So that will be, uh, be quite interesting. But all of the topics are related to understanding contemporary events. And the philosophy behind this is that if the Abrahamic Covenant is still in effect, and I believe it is, then those who bless Israel will be blessed, those who curse Israel will be cursed. And we need to understand what that means, what it means that as evangelicals, what it means to support Israel. And part of that is understanding what is going on. And I remember some years ago sitting in Bible class and people getting the idea that, well, supporting Israel, you meant you, you just sort of affirmed everything that they did, whatever decision the government made. And that's not what it means. It, 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 at the very core, it's affirming the existential right of Israel uh, to protect itself, defend its borders, uh, that they have a right to the land, that they have a legal, historical, and biblical right uh, to the land um, that the historic land that God has given them. A lot of people debate the legal issue, but if you look at international law, we've done that here many times, international law going back to the end of World War I, that all of the international law in the immediately following World War I, the breakup of the Ottoman Empire, the formation of all of the nations, some of which are in question today, uh, the boundaries, legal boundaries of Iraq, uh, Saudi, uh, Saudi Arabia, Jordan, uh, Syria, Lebanon, all of those were set after World War I, including uh, the land that was designated for Israel and was designated to be a national homeland for the Jewish people. And that was affirmed by the, by the League of Nations and was part of that, that whole uh, scenario after, after World War I. That's international law approved by 56 different nations. And so the, the idea of I mean, and that's been chiseled away ever since for a number of different reasons, but uh, we believe that. And so we need to come to understand more about that and what that means and to be informed about the things that are going on today. So that's a part of the conference, uh, September 8th through 11th, and uh, information is out there. We should get things emailed out. Uh, some of you have already received, seen the uh, flyers and everything. <coughs> Before we begin this evening, let's bow our heads together. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we're in right relationship with the Lord, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so grateful we can come together, we can fellowship around your word. We know that fellowship primarily focuses on our relationship with you. Secondarily, because of that relationship with you, we have fellowship with one another in the body of Christ, that it's all grounded in Christ and in his work on the cross, that he is everything to us, and he has made such a world of difference in our lives that we cannot even begin to fathom all that it has transformed. And Father, we pray that as we study your word that that we would come to grips with the way you work in history, the way you work in the lives of Israel, the way you work in the lives of, of uh, other nations, and that you raise up nations and you bring nations down, and you work providentially in this church age through your church to impact the world, to preserve the world, and when the rapture occurs and the restrainer of the Holy Spirit is removed and the church is removed, then all hell will literally break loose on this planet. Father, we pray that during this time we may be faithful and that we may be genuine students of your word, not just falling in love with your word, but falling in love with, with you and with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as a result of our study of your word. And we pray this in his name. Amen. 
We are in 1 Samuel chapter 16, 1 Samuel chapter 16, and we are beginning the life of David. I gave you an overview last time looking at uh, chapter 16 to 31 so that we could have a general idea of how things were going to go during this period. This is a, a period when we're going to see the transition from Saul to David. And when we see, there are a lot of ways in which we could compare and contrast Saul, and we'll see a number of them as we go through our study tonight in the weeks to come. But the core difference isn't that David was saved and Saul wasn't. There are some people who take that view. Uh, Saul is, like many believers down through the ages, he's a man who is, he might be a believer, he might be regenerate, but he is more concerned about his own self-centered agenda than he is the agenda of the Lord. And that's why the Scripture makes this uh, statement about David, characterizes him as a man after God's heart. We'll look at that a little bit uh, in our introduction as we go forward. But as we've seen through our study of Samuel, that the book, the first Samuel is really part of the whole uh, first and second Samuel, the books of Sam, the book of Samuel, divided into two because it wouldn't all fit on one scroll. This is why we have first and second Samuel, first and second Kings, and uh, in the and and in the Old Testament, first and second Chronicles. But they were originally one uh, one book, one entity. In the New Testament, you have first and second Corinthians, and those are completely separate. Epistles, first, second, third John are completely separate epistles. First and second Peter are completely separate epistles. But in the Old Testament, the divisions between first and second have to do with their uh, being divided so that they, uh, because they couldn't fit on, on, on one scroll. So we have Samuel, Saul, and David, the three personages that dominate the first book of, of Samuel. And we saw the rise of Samuel and his elevation to uh, the priesthood, and that God uh, uses him as a judge, and he is also a prophet in the first eight chapters. But then Israel rejected uh, him as judge his, as when he was older, said his sons would not uh, rule over them. They were rebellious, and they weren't uh, qualified, and they wanted to have a king like every other nation. That's important because what they wanted was a man after their heart, a man who was like them, a man that was like the kings in all the other countries. They wanted to have a uh, have a country that wasn't distinct and unique, and that's what God had called them to be as a unique and distinct nation. Another term for that would be a holy nation, a nation set apart to God. So Samuel dominates, and then after the rejection of God as king, uh, God directs Samuel, saying, they haven't rejected you, they've rejected me, and he directs Samuel to anoint Saul as king. But we never see the orientation of Saul to God like we will with David. Saul is a man after the people's heart. He looks like he should be king. That's this, this visual appearance is important as a backdrop to what we're going to see because when Samuel goes to the sons of Jesse, he's thinking, well, God had me pick Saul. He was uh, head and shoulders taller than anybody else. He looked presidential. He looked like a king. He looked like it was somebody you would want to be a king. And so... Uh, he's looking on the outside, and one of the most significant statements in Scripture is found in this chapter related to not looking on the outside. So we we see this this shift that takes place, but Saul is still the king. He is still the uh, uh, anointed king. Even though David is anointed, he's not elevated to the position yet. And I pointed out last time, this is an excellent analogy for the current church age, where we have the future king of Israel, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Messiah, who has been anointed at the first advent, but he is now seated not on his throne, but on his father's throne in heaven. He's not on David's throne. That's a position of amillennialism. That's the position that is taken by 
uh, so-called progressive dispensationalist, but nowhere in Scripture does it identify his throne in heaven as the throne of David. And so that is yet, yet future. But what we see in this period between David's anointing and his elevation to the throne is a period that is uh, analogous to what we see in the church age today. David is persecuted by the ruler of the kingdom, just as the church is persecuted by the ruler of this age. And David is gathering to himself a motley crew, uh, a crew of cast-outs, ne'er-do-wells, that are being trained during this period of time as they're moving from location to location to be his cadre, to be the rule, those who will rule and reign with him when he comes into his kingdom. And in the same way, the church is being trained. Uh, we are the ones who are looked down upon by the world around us. Uh, we, are, we have not had that position in this country for the last 300 years. But we are getting to the point where that is how we are looked upon, and uh, it will only get worse, I believe. So we see this period from chapter 16 with the anointing of David to 31 as the period of David's rise and Saul's decline and his ultimate, ultimate death. Now, as I pointed out last time, as we get into this last section, God is disciplining Saul and promotes David. Unless God promotes you, you're not really promoted, and God has David anointed but not raised yet because he's not ready. He doesn't have the capacity yet for leadership and to be the king. And that covers the second half of 1 Samuel. And in this section, as I've divided it from 1 Samuel 16, 1 through 20, verse 42, we see how God promotes and authenticates David. Now, before we get into the details of this text, I want to give a little background. First of all, we have to remember that after the worldwide flood at the time of Noah, we have a period of about 200 years where civilization expands very, very rapidly. People are still living four or five or 600 years, even though there's a a, a decline in from generation to generation of how long they live. Abraham lived to be almost 200 years of age. I think it was 180 when he died. So you still had uh, three, four, five generations living at the same time. So there's a p- rapid population growth, rapid expansion. But the people fail at the Tower of Babel. And at the Tower of Babel, you have Nimrod, who has p- appointed himself as the ruler of uh, of Babel and uh, conspired with the people to build this great tower that would represent a mountain. They're trying to reach heaven. Uh, there's tones in that story of anger towards heaven and also maybe the idea that they're going to build a tower high enough to prevent God from destroying them in a future flood. A lot of different tones going on in that episode that all speak of man's rebellion against God. So God turns from trying to work through the entire human race to working through one man. And in Genesis chapter 12, he calls out uh, Avram, Abram, uh, from Ur of the Chaldees, and that uh, Abram has already, we can tell from the text, that he's already become a believer in God. He has received the imputation of righteousness because of his faith. That's Genesis 15, 6. And now God is going to work through him and through his descendants. He gives God, a, he gives Abraham an eternal promise, an eternal covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, and it is reconfirmed with his son uh, Isaac and with his grandson uh, Jacob. And it is through that lineage that we trace the Jewish people, uh, not through Abram's other sons, but only through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, third thing I want to point out is that he has, that is, Abraham has a great-grandson, a son of Jacob, who is called Judah. And one of the first uh, indications of the ruling lineage comes from a prophecy that that, um, Jacob gives in Genesis chapter 49. Genesis 49, he gives a prophecy over each of his sons, and in the first, uh, <clears throat> first of that chapter, we read that Jacob called his sons together, and he said, 
Gather together that I may tell you what shall befall you in the last days. Isn't that an interesting phrase? Because we often think of this as, as as something fulfilled in history, whereas it is a it points to the last days. Now remember, there's the last days of Israel in the Bible and the last days of the church. Now, we have been in the last days of the church since the ascension of Christ. The church age is often referred to as the last times or the last days. And because of the doctrine of the imminency of the rapture, that Jesus could come back at any moment, nothing has to be fulfilled to uh, set the stage for the rapture that we have always been in the last days of the church. But in Genesis 49.1, it's talking about the last days related to Israel, God's plan for Israel. So there's a long-term projection in these particular verses. What we find is that in the first, uh, first eight verses or first seven verses, uh, Jacob gives prophecy related to the three older sons, the older brothers to Judah, and basically shows that they will be disqualified because to to be the uh, the heirs, the the chief heir, the eldest son type of heir, because of their spiritual failures, and then he comes to a prophecy for Judah, which begins in verse eight, and it begins saying, "You are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies," which indicates military strength and power that Judah's descendants would grow to a certain size and a certain dominance. And this is true. It's one of the largest tribes and has the largest uh, territory allotted to them uh, in, uh, in, in Joshua and after the, after the conquest. It says that he is compared to a lion. He bows down. He lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who shall rouse him? All of this is just imagery speaking of his strength. But then we have a fascinating statement in verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. Now, a scepter is a sign of a ruler. It is a a, a royal staff. Usually in the ancient world, it would be uh, carved, and oftentimes it would be uh, covered in gold or silver, sometimes in jewels. And this is a sign of royalty. So the idea that the scepter shall not depart from Judah is an indication that the ruling line for Israel will come from the descent of Judah, from the tribe of Judah. And it's a promise that it would not depart, that even though, as we know, looking back, there would be times when uh, Israel would be defeated, taken out of the land, when uh, there would be civil war, it would be split between the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, that that nevertheless, uh, when they were brought back, there would still be a lineage of Judah. There would still be someone who would uh, be leading the people. And ultimately, even though that line faded, it would be restored in uh, the person of the Messiah. And Isaiah talks about the 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 root of Jesse, Jesse's in the is David's father, and that's in the line of Judah, and it's the idea uh, or the stump of Jesse also that that the line seems to be cut out uh, and cut down, but then there's a new shoot that comes out, a new branch, and that becomes a a, a title for the for the Messiah. But we have here this statement: the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor a lawgiver from between his feet. That's an imagery of of descent. Until Shiloh comes. Now, this is a somewhat interesting phrase. uh, There's a lot of debate over just exactly what it it means. Some thinks that it's, uh, have translated this as though it's the place name of Shiloh. Shiloh is the Hebrew pronunciation of the location of the tabernacle. After the Israelites entered into the land and after the conquest, they found a permanent location in Shiloh for the establishment of the tabernacle. And it is supposed by a number of scholars that it became more a little more permanent there, uh, just as you might have uh, if you were to have a tent 
and you were going to live there for a long time. Before long, you'd start building a few walls, and you might build a more permanent roof. Or if you were living in a mobile home, you might start adding a few features to it until eventually it wasn't so mobile anymore and had a little more permanent status. The tabernacle was at that location at Shiloh for a little over 300 years. So during that time, it became uh, somewhat uh, somewhat stable. And this was where the ark was located, at, and this is where we see Hannah and her family visiting the uh, the the ark visiting the ark for the festivals at the beginning of Samuel. So uh, this was the location of Shiloh. But the issue here is, and part of the problem, is that the Masoretic text, uh, when it inserts the vowels in in, in the the word the, the the consonants are sh, the sheen in Hebrew l and h, a, a hey a soft h. And then uh, it's usually pointed when it's talking about the the city, the location. It usually has certain vowels, Hebrew vowels associated with it, and those are different from the vowel pointing in this verse. And so the argument there is that this isn't talking about the physical location because it's a different. The Masoretic text understood it to be a different word. And so inserted different vowels. Second view is that the term Shiloh is a proper name for the Messiah. That also seems to have some support from Jewish studies. In the Talmud, in the Tractate Sanhedrin in 98b, it answers the question on the name of the Messiah by saying, Shiloh is his name as it is said until Shiloh come. And so that's a reference to this particular verse. So this was a... Now, the Talmud is written after the church age. You have the collection of the Jewish uh, oral tradition written down and organized by a man named Judah the Prince about uh, 100 uh, A.D. And that was called the Mishnah. And then the Talmud is a collection of Jewish commentary on on the, the, the Mishnah. And if you look at a Talmud page, they're lar- large pages, and you'll have in the middle, you'll have a, a rectangle there about the size of, of a page in a, in a trade-sized paperback, and that's the Mishnah. And then there's about a half-inch margin around that, and then you have written all around that a, the commentary and the combination of the two, the Mishnah and the Gemara, which is the commentary, that combined made up the Talmud. You had two great Talmuds. You had the Babylonian Talmud and the Jerusalem Talmud. And so the Talmud isn't put together until late in the 3rd century into the 4th century. So this is tradition that is a couple of hundred years after uh, the, the rise of the church and the rise of Christianity. There's also a Targum. A Targum was a, like a commentary written by a man who used the name of Jonathan. He wasn't, uh, it's a, it was a pseudonym. So it's called the Targum of Pseudo-Jonathan. And he translates this as, until the time of the King Messiah shall come. There's also a reference to this among the Dead Sea Scrolls in Qumran that translated this, until the coming of the Messiah of righteousness. So there's a fairly good tradition that Shiloh here is a name for the Messiah. But then there's a third view. There's a couple of other minor views, but of the significant views, the third view is that uh, Shiloh here is a word uh, that means that which belongs to him or to whom it uh, to whom it belongs. And this is uh, seen in um, the way the Septuagint translates this, and it's also supported by the Targum of Ankalos. And then there were some early Greek, uh, early Church Age Greek translations of the of the uh, Old Testament Scripture, to be different from the Septuagint, uh, by Ankylos, Achilles. I mean, excuse me, by Achilles, Symmachus, and Theodosian, and that would translate this 
until he to whom it belongs comes. So again, this would be an allusion to the, to the Messiah, but it wasn't using Shiloh as a messianic name. And this is somewhat uh, supported by Ezekiel 21:27, which reads, "Overthrown, overthrown." This is a, a recognition that Israel was about to be defeated by the Babylonians. I will make it overthrown, God is speaking, saying, It shall be no longer until he comes whose right it is. And so this is seen as a confirmation of of the uh, interpretation that it is that Shiloh should be translated as to whom it belongs. This is a view that is taken by uh, both Arnold Fruchtenbaum and Michael Rydelnik, and Rydelnik has about three pages discussing all of the intricate details as to uh, why this is the best solution. Uh, I've heard him explain it. I think he explained it verbally better better than he explained it in the book. I think this is probably uh, the best solution, uh, that it is an allusion to the... It is messianic. Um, So either the second solution or this solution are both messianic, and I think either one of those is, is, is viable. So we see that the king is going to come through the line of Judah and that this is definitely a messianic uh, prophecy in Genesis 49, uh, 9, and 10. Then the next time we see a reference to the line of Judah, we see a, a uh, development of that line in Ruth. Now, Judah has a son. That's, his sons are listed uh, in, in uh, Genesis of, uh, in Genesis 46, 12, one of his sons is Perez. And that line, the Perizzite line, is picked up in the genealogy of Ruth. Remember when we went to Genesis, and I said that the, one of the key words in Genesis is the word seed, and that we trace the lineage of Jesus. All those genealogies that people read and think, oh, that's just so boring, that that's tracing the seed all the way from Eve all the way down to, to uh, Judah here at the end of Genesis and then uh, to in, in through uh, Exodus. And we these genealogies carry the line all the way through. So we have Perez picked up after the story of Ruth. Ruth 4.18, this is the genealogy of Perez. Perez gave birth to Hezron, Hezron to Ram, Ram to Aminadab, Aminadab to Nashon, Nashon to Salmon, Salmon begat Boaz. He is the kinsman who redeems Ruth and marries her. And they have a son named Obed. And Obed is the father of Jesse, who is the father of David. So uh, David's great-grandmother is Ruth. And here we have, I drew it out in a line here, uh, David's grandfather is Obed, his great-grandfather is Boaz, married to Ruth, and this is the line of David going back to Perez, Perez being the son of Judah. So this traces the royal, uh, the royal line, and David now is going to be anointed, he's going to be chosen by God to be, uh, to be the ruler. And the <clears throat> line that we see coming through here is a line that is related to Boaz and Ruth, and where do they live? They live in Bethlehem, the house of bread. But before that, it was known as Ephrata. It was his territory. Uh, so, so it's later referred to as Bethlehem of Ephrata. And now we just refer to it as Bethlehem. But in Micah 5.2, Micah says, but you, Bethlehem Ephrata, though you are little among the thousands of Judah. Now, this is a messianic prophecy. And it's talking about the fact that Bethlehem is just this small little town that, that, that's not very big. Now, now, you have to understand that if, if, if we were in Bethlehem right here, it probably wouldn't be any larger than the block that we're in might not have even been that large at the time of David. It was just a very small village and therefore insignificant. That's why when Micah writes this prophecy, which is around 700, this is, this is still uh, 300 years after David, 
he mentions that Bethlehem is just a, a, a little bitty nothing of a town. It's just a, a wide spot on the road. It wouldn't even uh, it wouldn't even require one stoplight. We have a lot of places like that in Texas that are just one traffic light, and usually it's just blinking. But it wouldn't even be that large. It was an insignificant place. It would be insignificant when Messiah came, and it was insignificant for the king of of uh, Israel at this time. David was coming from an insignificant location. He's not the person you would expect to be king. He's not going to look like a king. He's not going to come from a, a wealthy family. He's not going to have the trappings uh, of kingship uh, about him. But it's going to be his character that matters, not the physical attributes of his family or his life. Now, when we get into the <clears throat> the descriptions about David, there's two passages that refer to the fact that David is a man after God's own heart. And in Acts chapter 13, Paul uh, is going through some of the Old Testament uh, episodes, and he says that when God had removed him, that is Saul, he raised up for them David as king. Notice the emphasis here and all through 1 Samuel 16 and before is on the sovereignty of God. God is the ruler of creation. God is the ruler of history. And God is the one who has selected uh, the descendants of Abraham to be recipients of special responsibilities and blessing. And God is going to raise up the ruler that he desires. Now, Saul, he gave to the people because that's what they wanted. And he reflected the values of the human heart, which Jeremiah says is deceitful and wicked above all things. So, and Paul says regarding David that um, God raised it up for them. David is king to whom also he gave testimony. That is, God gave testimony. This is God's assessment of the core of David's character. It says, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart who will do all of my will. Now, I think we need to parse this just a little bit. David is a man, he's a sinner, and David committed some pretty egregious sins. But when God looked at his heart, at his focal point, at what, uh, at what David really wanted to do, he knew that David was a man who wanted to please God more than anything else. Did he always accomplish that? No, not any more than we always accomplish that. But there's a big difference, I think, between a man who is, has made a decision early in life that he is going to be devoted and focused to the Lord no matter what, and people who convince themselves of that, but they are self-deceived. Uh, I was thinking about that today. How do we know that they're self-deceived? Well, we eventually find out. I found out this last week of a man who, as a boy, he grew up at the same church where I was. If I mentioned his name or his parents' name, many of you would know his his name, his family. And um, he went off to college, uh, went to uh Lubbock Bible Church when Charlie Clough was a pastor. In fact, he was responsible for transcribing numerous, uh, numerous studies that Charlie did. And I got a Facebook message from a mutual friend that I'd also grown up with. She said, have you read his Facebook page lately? He has repudiated Jesus Christ and converted to Judaism. Oh, I forgot to mention he also went to Dallas Seminary. I can't tell you how many people I have heard about in the last 30 years, many of whom were pastors or theologians who have apostatized from the faith. You would look at them and think that at some point they were as solid as a rock. One was Francis Beckworth, who is the Beckwith, who is the uh, he was, uh, he's still considered one of the, our generation's great apologists. He was on the theological faculty at Baylor University, Baylor Seminary there, and he was also at the time the president of the Evangelical Theological Society. 
And while he was president of the Evangelical Theological Society, he covertly slipped into a Catholic church and made confession and rejoined the Catholic faith. It made front-page headline news throughout Latin America. Evangelical comes home. This is a blight on the escutcheon of the cross. It is, but this is not unique. When I first went to Connecticut, I was thinking, well, let's see if there are any schools around here worth going to, maybe getting, finishing up my doctorate up here. And there's Gordon-Conwell College up in... um, up in Boston, on the northeast side of Boston, and it's an evangelical school, had a lot of fine men that have taught there, and I was reading about them and ran across an article that talked about this academic epidemic that they were facing, not unique to them. I'm not pounding on their case. And talking about, this was in 1998, talking about the fact that in the previous uh, 15 to 20 years, they had had a rash to the tune of 15% of their alumni who had converted to Roman Catholicism. I don't think that's unique to them. What we're seeing is, and, and before that in the mid-80s, mid there were three Dallas Seminary professors who were all uh, released from their contracts. That means they were fired because they got involved with the vineyard movement. There have been others who have gone Greek Orthodox, What is going on here? What is going on here is men who who have thought that because they have the intellectual answers that they have a personal relationship with God. And what happens over the course of time when they enter into the pressures of life is there's a vacuum in their soul because they know a lot about God and a lot about the Bible and a lot about doctrine, but they don't know the God of the Bible. They don't know the Jesus of the Bible. They just know a lot of data. And when the pressure comes, it, they collapse on the inside. It exposes the inner, inner absence of a spiritual life and a spiritual walk. I think Saul represented that kind of person. David represents the person who had a deep, profound, personal relationship with God, and he made a decision that he stuck with from the from being a young very young man that he nothing else mattered than pleasing the Lord, even though he failed many times, we all will, and that's why many of us love David. He's like Peter in the New Testament. He is so flawed, but he is so loyal. We all fail, and we have no grounds for self righteousness at all. We are all still corrupt sinners. But the difference between a David and a Saul is David continuously would confess his sin to God, and he would be cleansed, and his sin was dealt with, whereas Saul didn't care. He was arrogant, and he walked independently of God. So this is, this is the essence of what this means. It doesn't mean David was perfect. He certainly wasn't. It doesn't mean that David was was sinless. He wasn't a plaster saint. He was someone who was uh, had a sin nature that was extremely active at times and got seriously out of control at times. And God disciplined him severely when that happened. But David never doubted that even, and I don't know if you've ever thought this or been this way, but no matter how sinful that you might be, you still know God exists. Jesus died for my sins and God's treating me in grace because I haven't been incinerated just now. Many of us understand that that's what grace is all about. Uh, But David was that way. God looked on his heart and knew that it was focused on him no matter what the external behavior might have been at times. In fact, in Psalm 57.7, this is a psalm we'll look at when we get to the point when, Dave, when uh, Saul is in the cave. Dave, after that whole episode, David wrote this particular psalm, so we'll go through it when we get there. But in that psalm, David says, My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. That repetitions for emphasis. It says, I will sing and give praise 
And the word there that is translated steadfast is a word that means to be firm or to establish or to prepare, and it expresses the determination of David to serve the Lord always, to praise the Lord, and that this was a bedrock conviction that no matter what happens, he was not going to shift away from the Lord. And that was his focus all of his life, unlike his son Solomon. Solomon started off well, but then he allowed his devotion to God to be a distraction. See, there's a difference between somebody who's a sinner and just giving rein to the lust patterns of their soul and someone who is disloyal to God and turns to idolatry. And that is what happens with um, these people I talked about earlier. They have made idols out of ritual or idols out of emotion or they have made idols out of works, shifting to a works-based religious system. Another psalm tells us a little bit more about David in Psalm 78. Now, we're told that this is a psalm of Asaph. Asaph, we're told in Chronicles, was one of the chief musicians at the time of David. Others want to place him uh, a little bit later. They look at this psalm and the way they... Um, look at some of the details of the psalm. Some will place it a little later in David's life, um, maybe right near the end. Some may place it a little bit earlier. But the psalm, for the most part, is a rehearsal of Israel's disobedience to God and of God's faithfulness to his covenant and faithfulness to his people. And at the conclusion of the psalm, The psalmist says, he also chose David his servant. Again, an emphasis, God is the one who raises up leaders, and God is the one who takes down leaders, good or ill. He also chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds. Now, this is not the place where you would think you're going to find the next king. He didn't take him from the local Harvard or Yale or Princeton or any place that that might have that kind of respectability. He took him from a low position. But sometimes when you're in a low position, you learn a lot about humility. You learn a lot about leadership. You learn a lot about uh, how to work. You develop a strong work, work ethic. And you learn what really is important as you deal with some of the rougher basic issues in life. He took him, God took him from the sheepfolds, from following the ewes that had young. Now think about that. He's having to take care of these pregnant sheep that are about to give birth. And he has to follow them around as they're uh, not wanting him to get too close. And they're still getting into tough spots and they're getting behind rocks and crevasses and behind the sticker bushes and everything else. And David has to uh, follow them to make sure that when they get ready to go into labor, he's going to be able to be there and help them in the process. So he's learning to care for these animals just as he will learn to care for the people of Israel. Uh, he followed the ewes that had young. He was From following the ewes that had young, he brought him, God brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people. And many times in Scripture, the Scripture uses the analogy of shepherding as the model for a good leader. And a shepherd is one who takes care of his sheep. He feeds them. He protects them. When you transfer that to the pastor, the pastor feeds and protects through teaching of the Word and keeping people from uh, being exposed to error, teaching them how to avoid falling into apostasy and falling into error. It teaches them how to, what the Word says, so that they can be nourished and fed spiritually. So David learned this, and it is training for leadership in the future. Verse 72, So he shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them by the skillfulness of his hands. Now this is a fascinating passage here in the parallelism it's not a synonymous parallelism integrity of heart is not uh, synonymous to skillfulness of hands but you have a development uh, where it moves from the first point to develop to the second point 
First, there's an internal attitude. He has integrity in his heart. This is the Hebrew word tome, which emphasizes a personal integrity. He learned responsibility uh, by being put out there into the sheepfold. And so as he develops integrity, as as we'll learn later when he is um, uh, queried by Saul as to why he should let him go up against Goliath, David said, well, I learned how to protect my sheep. Whenever there was a lion or whenever there was a bear that would attack, then I would go after them with my slingshot and my staff. I don't know if any of us would want to take on a, a cougar or a... Uh, bear with nothing more than a slingshot and a staff, but that's what David did. He learned responsibility to care for the sheep, and so that gave him integrity. He didn't just say, well, you know, Dad, I lost five or six of the sheep. Uh, you gave me the responsibility to protect them, but, uh, you know, it's a little tough fighting a mountain lion, so I just had to let him go with it. No, he had integrity. He He did the job. He did what needed to be done. So there's a heart attitude which is your mentality. Often in the Old Testament, most often in the Old Testament, the word heart refers to your mindset, your mentality, not your emotion, your mental attitude. And he's, got, he's developed a mental attitude of toughness and a mental attitude of responsibility. And this developed into actions. When it talks about skillfulness of his hands, hands often represent what we do in life. Um, and so what, what is... It, emphasize here is he has integrity internally in his mindset in his attitude that worked itself out into uh, the what he did and how he did it how he carried out his job and carried out the affairs of life and we'll see this in the coming chapters talking about David's attitude his mentality David comes from what we would say today he comes from nothing he was like the original log cabin president he came out of a background and a position that would not have thought, made anyone think that one day he would be uh, the ruler of one of the greatest empires uh, of the Middle East. The New Testament, Paul talks about this. He says, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. Now, it doesn't mean that they are foolish in an absolute sense. But in terms of society, they they don't look like much. They didn't go to the right schools. They weren't part of the right fraternities or the right sororities. They didn't come up under the right coaches. Uh, But they have a personal integrity that uh, is greater than all of that. They have biblical wisdom as opposed to human viewpoint wisdom. God has chosen the foolish things of the world. That that doesn't have the status that the world uh, gives to people. And God's chosen the weak things of the world. Now, that doesn't mean he doesn't use anyone that's not bright or not well-educated, but that's not the norm. God has a place for the Pauls, the Apostle Pauls, who are well-educated, probably the top of his rabbinical class. God uses many intelligent, great men who are in the pastorate and in ministry and teaching in seminaries who are well-educated. But that's not the norm. You know, we're going to be so surprised when we get to heaven. The the people who are out front today are are the pastors and many ministries that have a lot of... of, uh, a glitz to them. They they have big numbers. They have big buildings. They have large uh, radio or television ministries. But there are so many believers who sit there taking the word and just do it. They they are faithful in giving. They are faithful in witnessing. Uh, they are quiet. They don't look like much. They're they have uh, all kinds of very ordinary jobs but they are more faithful in their application of the word than many of the people that we think are, are, are out front, that, that know the word so well. God's chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are that no flesh should glory in his presence." See, one of the contrasts between David and Saul is Saul seems kind of quiet and bashful and shy at the beginning, but he's filled with arrogance. 
He, he may not act like he thinks he's much, but he really does. David is truly humble. He is submissive to the authority of Saul, even when Saul is trying to kill him. And one of the things that we're going to see as we go through the last half of Samuel is that there's this subtle contrast developed between the genuine humility of David and the arrogance of Saul. And the arrogance of Saul culminated in the great indictment from Samuel when Samuel told him that that rebellion is as the sin of divination and insubordination is as the sin of idolatry, is like idolatry and sin. And see, Saul is 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 arrogant, but uh, and rebellious. But David, we're going to see, is obedient. He's submissive to Saul. He gets caught in the cave with Saul, and all of his men say, oh, "Here's God's opportunity for you to kill him." This guy's trying to kill you. He's been trying to kill you over and over and over again. And David weakens a little bit, and he reaches out and he cuts off the hem of Saul's robe just to be able to show, see, I could have killed you, but I didn't. You see a hint of pride, and he is so convicted by that, that by just doing that, he has violated the authority of God's anointed that that he he comes out and he has to confess it to Saul and apologize that he did that. It was an affront to Saul's authority, even though Saul is not worthy of that at all. But this is God's anointed. God has put him in authority. And that's one of the hardest things for independent-minded Americans to grasp is the emphasis on submission to authority. That's humility in the scriptures. So we're going to see this again and again. Now, for years, I pointed this out last week, liberals have said, well, we've never found any evidence of David in archaeology, so he's just a myth. And then about in the mid-90s, they discovered at Tel Dan, which is located in the north of Israel, an inscription highlighted here that is a reference to the house of David. And so that tells us that David existed, his dynasty existed, and it confirms what the Bible says. Now, as we get into the chapter, it's a rather short chapter. There's not a lot of action that takes place here, but it is significant for us to go through this. The Lord addresses Samuel. Now, at the end of chapter 15, what we noted is that Samuel is despondent. He's mourning over uh, Saul's failure and Saul's rejection. And not only that, but we also see that that God, the text says that God uh, regretted uh, that he had made Saul king over uh, Israel. And the Hebrew word there is nacham. It's repeated a couple of times in this chapter for emphasis. And and it's only used of God a couple of times. It's an anthropopathism, as I pointed out. It doesn't mean that God changed his mind like a human did, because as we see in this uh, this particular chapter that one of the uses of this is to say that God is not a man that he should repent. Uh, he's not going to change. So that uh, it's an anthropomathism from our perspective. He's changed his mind about uh, Saul being over Israel. But this idiom that is expressing this kind of shift in God's plan is only used one other time prior to this. And that's in Genesis chapter 6. When Scripture says God regretted that He had made man, now what's the what's the result of that? The judgment of the worldwide flood. In other words, when God looks down and we have this kind of a statement made regarding God's plan and shift of plans, it is something extremely serious. That this isn't just a minor thing. This is something that's extremely serious. So now, after Samuel has mourned a little bit. God says, how long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I've rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill your horn with oil, go, and I'm, and I'm sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. Now, Ecclesiastes tells us that there is a time to weep, there's a time to mourn. I mean, a time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance. Sometimes Christians get the idea that I shouldn't mourn or that Samuel was wrong to mourn. No, it's okay to mourn, but there's a time to mourn. 
and after a short after a time of mourning you need to get up and move on and that's what god is saying here that it is time to uh to move on but uh i don't know how long that period of time was in daniel chapter 10 verse 2 daniel is given a revelation he says in those days i was mourning for three full weeks nothing wrong with that but then it was time to move on Nehemiah 1.4, as Nehemiah heard this terrible report about how the walls of Jerusalem hadn't been rebuilt, he sat down and wept and mourned for many days, and he was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Sometimes mourning is good because it drives us to focus on the Lord again. And, um, and then in the New Testament, we realize that when there's a death, we don't sorrow like those who have no hope. It doesn't say we don't sorrow. We do. But then we have to learn to apply Scripture and move on as we go through that, that morning. So what we see here is that Samuel is instructed to take a, uh, a horn, and he is going to fill it with olive oil, and he will go to the home of Jesse the Benjamite. Now, the term uh, Jesse is not a common name among the Israelites. Uh, it may be an Aramaic name. Uh, perhaps it's a name that came out of Ruth's background. We don't know. But we do know that he is the grandson of Boaz and Ruth. Uh, this is the first time the word Bethlehemite shows up in Scripture, and we know that it's going to be the future birthplace, because of Micah, of the Messiah. It's about 10 miles south of Ramah. Ramah is where Samuel is living. Ramah is about five miles north of Jerusalem, and Bethlehem is about five miles south. Now, to put that in perspective, we're about 10 miles from downtown. So if we were at Ramah, we would be moving towards Bethlehem, and it would be about where downtown is, and Jerusalem would be located about where Memorial Park is located, and Jerusalem at that time probably wasn't as big as Memorial Park. It was really small. In fact, if you take the... uh, if you ever go know where the jogging trail is at Memorial Park, or if you've ever walked it, that section is about the size, maybe a little larger of the Jebusite city, the city of David, at that particular time. So it's not very large. But that's those are about the distances. So uh, Samuel says, well, how do I go? I can't really trust Saul. If he finds out that I'm headed down there and what I'm going to do, then Saul is... is um, Saul's going to react against this, and my life may be in danger. And God says, well, I've got a mission for you. You're going to take a heifer with you, and if anyone asks, say that you've come to sacrifice to the Lord. And that's legitimately what he was going to do, was go down there and uh, provide a sacrifice. Now, a heifer was a, is a young female uh, cow, and according to Leviticus 3.1, a uh, heifer was the sacrifice for a peace offering. And so as his role as priest, he would go to different villages and teach and also offer sacrifices. And so that's what he is going to do. But he has a, another mission as well, and that is to invite Jesse to the sacrifice. And then God's going to reveal to him what he should do. Now, we don't know how God was going to reveal it to him. Don't read into the text your intuition your feelings, your emotions, liver quiver, or any of the other things that people go by. We don't know how this worked. Uh, Samuel's a prophet. God could have audibly spoken to him. Uh, we don't know how this worked. God communicated it very clearly to him as to who he would anoint. And so Samuel went to Bethlehem. Uh, the elders were a little concerned because why is this significant man of God coming here? Maybe we've done something. And they want to know if he's peaceable and he's not going to bring judgment from God. And he says, yes, it's peaceable. I'm, shalom is the word there. I've come to sacrifice the Lord. And he says, sanctify yourselves and then come with me to the sacrifice. So before they could sacrifice, they had to be, they had to be ritual cleansing. And then he says, then he, that is Samuel, consecrated Jesse and his sons. The word consecrated and the word sanctified are the same Hebrew verb, kadash. In kadash, uh, the first one, sanctify yourselves, that's a hithpael in the Hebrew, which means it's causative do, and reflexive. Do this to yourselves. Make sure you are ritually cleansed. If you need to uh, wash, 
You need to wash. If you need to change your clothes, you need to avoid certain practices in t- uh, ahead of time, then you needed to have done that. There were different stipulations for cleansing in the New Testament. And so you had to be cleansed. And, and uh, uh, he says that to the elders, and then he found Jesse and his sons, and he personally uh, sanctified them. We're not told exactly how he did that, and then invited them to the sacrifice. Now, this probably took a few days. It's not something that just happened quickly. People have to walk a long distance, all of these kinds of things, so it takes the logistics take a little bit of time. And so when they come together, Jesse brings his son. The first son comes, and he looks manly. He looks regal. He looks like he should be king. And so Samuel looks at him and says, Ah, this is the Lord's anointed. The word anointed is the word in Hebrew, Mashiach, which is where we get our word Messiah, translated into Greek as Christos of Christ. And so this is where we get this word, and he's going to be the anointed one. But the Lord says to him in verse 7, don't look on the outer appearance or at his physical stature. There have been so many people, as I have heard in this presidential election from all kinds of different people, well, so-and-so just doesn't look presidential. Look at the way that person looks. Look at that hair. That was Hillary, not Trump. Look at that hair. That's Trump, not Hillary. <laughs> look, at, look at those age lines. Look at how she stumbles. All, all kinds of things that don't have anything to do with character, don't have anything to do with politics. We live in an age where we would rather vote for a John F. Kennedy than a Richard Nixon just because Nixon had a heavy, heavy 5 o'clock shadow on his face in a debate. We are so superficial. We're going to vote for appearance and we're not going to vote for content, and we deserve whatever we get. And God says, don't look on the outside. Don't look on... I got in trouble. Some people didn't like it when I said, you know, in the 20th century, it's rare in a contest between two presidential candidates uh, for a man under 5'9 to be the winner. That doesn't have anything to do with content. I'm just, that's just an observation on the superficiality of a pagan culture in the 20th century. And I had people who got all upset because that meant that their candidate, who was shorter, wouldn't get there. He didn't get there. Didn't make it. Uh, he should have, perhaps. I'm not making a judgment on that. I'm just saying this is human nature. We're superficial, and this is what God is talking about. Don't, don't make ad hominem arguments for or against a candidate. It's not about how they look, how they talk, how they smell, uh, what their nose is like, what their chin is like, what their eyes are like. It's their character and the content of their belief system. The Lord does not see as a man sees, for man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Now, this is similar to what Isaiah says in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, when God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor your ways my ways, says the Lord. So are the heavens higher, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. There's human viewpoint versus divine viewpoint. And frankly, the choices we've had for president and most political offices for the last 50 years have between, been between one kind of human viewpoint and another kind of human viewpoint. And we are supposed to vote for the one that's going to we think, best work out, that where the church can function peaceably and carry out her role and her mission under that particular leader, whether it's a mayor or a governor or a president. We have to focus on what's best. When we have a choice between two midgets, we have to pick the one that's the taller. Now, I'm going to get in trouble with somebody. But that's what we're doing. We have to pick the taller of two midgets. And there may not be but a millimeter's worth of difference. 1 Samuel 16, 8. So Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before he didn't make it, make the cut. The next son, the third son, uh, Shammah passed by and he didn't make the cut. And then the rest of the sons went by and none of them made the cut. And so Samuel says to Jesse, are all the young men here? And he said, well, we got the young one. He's the run of the litter. He's not much. 
He's out taking care of the sheep because, well, he's the young one, so we give him the dirtiest jobs. And so Samuel says, well, bring him here, for we won't sit down until he comes. Now, they were probably getting hungry by this point. So uh, Jesse sent for him and brought him in. Now we're told he was ruddy with bright eyes and good-looking. So he's, he's not the runt of the litter in terms of his appearance, but he probably wasn't as tall as, as uh, Eliab. And the Lord indicates to Samuel, this is he. This is he. Anoint him. This is the one. And then we're told Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him. It's a picture of the Holy Spirit coming upon somebody. It's external. It's not internal. So anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. And the word there, upon, is important. It's the Hebrew word el, which means to come to or toward someone. It's not in him. We have the internal indwelling of the Holy Spirit today. This is an external uh, position of, of empowerment, not internal. That's going to be important because we're going to see that these evil spirits that come upon Saul also come upon him or come to him. They don't go in him. It's not demon possession. It's not internal. So those prepositions are really important. And so from that day forward, the Holy Spirit is empowering David to rule. Now, let's just look at four quick points on the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. First of all, it's limited to leaders in Israel. I added it up one time, probably not more than 90 or 100 people in the Old Testament were empowered by the Holy Spirit. They were prophets, priests, writers of Scripture, a few kings and judges, and the craftsmen who made the tabernacle, Aholiab and Bezalel. We're told that the Holy Spirit was given to empower them to fulfill their responsibilities in relation to the theocratic kingdom of Israel. They were rulers and administrators, and they had other functions, but that's what the purpose was. It wasn't to empower them in their spiritual life. We're told that the Holy Spirit, this was temporary. The Holy Spirit was taken from Saul in verse 14 of this chapter, and he might have been taken from David. David prays in Psalm 51, 11, Lord, do not take your spirit from me. And then last, we learned that the Holy Spirit was not given to empower their spiritual lives. Not like we have in the church age. That's what's so remarkable. We've been given the Holy Spirit, and we've been baptized by the Spirit, and that never happened before the day of Pentecost. That's what's unique to the church age. We'll come back and look at the contrast between David and Saul the rest of the chapter next time. Father, thank you for this time to study your word. Pray that you would uh, help us to understand, apply these things, and that you would give us wisdom and skill as we learn and study about the people who are running for various offices for this election, that we may make a wise selection. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.